Shalom and marhaba, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a very special episode this week with two returning guests slash friends. Israel Policy Forum's very own Israel Fellow, Nimrod Novik, who for many years was a senior advisor to the late Shimon Peres, and Ibrahim Dalalshe, the head of the Horizon Center Think Tank and a longtime advisor at the U.S. Consulate in Jerusalem. We dove into the current situation in the West Bank amidst the Gaza War, the looming holy month of Ramadan starting in just a few weeks, Gaza diplomacy and whether the U.S. plan for a grand bargain can actually succeed, and Palestinian Authority reform, amongst other topics. This was a terrific episode and a very important episode, if I may say so. Let's get to Nimrod and Ibrahim. Hi, Nimrod. Hi, Ibrahim. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. It's been way too long since we had you here last. Well, we haven't missed you because we listen to all your podcasts. Ah, uh, very kind of you, Nimrod. Hi, Ibrahim. Hello. Hi, Nimrod. Uh, how are you? I'm okay, despite uh, obvious circumstances, but I wanted to discuss those circumstances with you both on this episode, and there's a lot to discuss, obviously, but I wanted to do something a little different this time, and let's start with more of a focus on the West Bank, and then we'll shift to Gaza and the wider diplomatic angles to the war. As we know, alongside the IDF campaign in Gaza, there's also been a major and widespread operation these last four plus months in the West Bank as well. We've seen serious restrictions on access and movement between Palestinian cities in the West Bank. Over 130,000 Palestinian laborers who usually work inside Israel have not done so since October 7th, and there's a major economic and financial crisis ongoing inside the Palestinian Authority, on top of the overall political tensions stemming from the war in Gaza. So, Ibrahim, start us off, if you could. What's the general mood and current state of play in the West Bank right now, which is, of course, your home as well? Uh, How do Palestinians there see and understand everything happening over the last four months. Yeah. Actually, I, if I may, everything you said is correct and applies exactly accurate description of the situation in the West Bank. I want to add to it that in the past two, uh, in fact, three years, the West Bank has also been going through difficult times. Even when Gaza was seemingly quiet, you know, the West Bank was still, there were shooting attacks, there were Israeli military insurgents, there were killings, more than 250 people were killed in a single year in 2023. And now, since October 7, we have about 400 people, um, or close to that, uh, people that were killed, in, and about 6,500 cases of detention, half of them have uh, are still being detained. In addition to that, as you described, you know, the uh, difficult economic and financial situation with a uh, double impact, one because of the financial crisis created, uh, the PA financial cri- uh, crisis created over the Israeli government decision to cut the Gaza portion and from the tax revenues collected every month, and the PA's refusal to receive the West Bank portion, there has been serious decline in cash flow in terms of, you know, like PA unable to pay its uh, uh, employees full salaries. You, and this includes, you know, both civilian and security uh, systems. In addition to that, as you mentioned, uh, I think the, the, the number of uh, people who work in Israel, both with permits and the ones who actually work with other forms of permits, is about 200,000 people. And those have not really been able to work inside Israel. And, and as such, the, uh, the whole 
Palestinian economy, the whole cycle of cash flow inside the Palestinian market has been affected seriously. You add to that, uh, you know, the frustration over the situation in Gaza, and mainly, you know, some of the uh, polling and media characterize Palestinian emotions in the West Bank as supportive of Hamas, and I think. You know, that's not exactly, you know, the, the case. I think that the image and footage of civilians being killed in Gaza has really a big impact on the sentiments of anger, uh, frustration and helplessness in the West, in, in the West, you know, across the population in the West. So I think that, you know, one could say that we would have wished for better times, but it's really under very uh, serious. It's like a, a cooking pressure. You know, basically we have a continued sustained pressure from all sides, from all walks, from all normal walks of life. And that's not obviously, you know, a good situation. No, obviously not. And by the way, I think last time I had you both on, it was last summer, right after a two-day major operation in the Janine refugee camp. And at the time, we called it the most significant IDF operation in the West Bank since the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. And now, really, over the past four months, we've seen those types of operations almost on a on a weekly and a few months ago, even on a almost daily basis. So just by way of comparison, by the way, Ibrahim, before we get to Nimrod, given the really dire situation, especially economic inside the West Bank, how are people making ends meet? How are those 200,000 people and their families and extended families actually surviving now, not working for over four months? You know, there are different ways that people actually cope with a difficult situation like this. But in my opinion, there is a limit to how far things can go. For example, people have, you know, we have a strong social fabric where people depend on family relatives. People actually go and borrow. People actually take, you know, cut. Uh, their needs to the basics and they actually try to get it from the local pharmacy, the local grocery and so on. Others do uh, use some of the savings that they have, if they have any. The problem right now is that, you know, both the public sector and, you know, the labor sector, which are the two big winners of, uh, yeah, exactly, the two main uh, breadwinners, if you will, uh, are both impacted. And as such, even that social fabric has been impacted and affected. It's a domino effect because, you know, the private sector, the smaller businesses, every, every, everything and everybody is impacted. So, so far, people are resilient enough. They uh, cut on their basic needs. But I think, you know, there are limits. And here I'm not really talking about the, uh, you know, the big companies and big businesses and the, and the economic indicators there because the decline is really uh, enormous. And it has been expected to be above 40% of the situation continues to be as is. The distress is impacting families and people at the individual level. So this is not just a macro sort of like economic uh, problem for big companies. It's actually for the first time, I would say, and I haven't really seen this for so many years, that you have a total collapse, uh, gradual, but a total collapse and quickly, gradual, but quickly of the economic and financial and the fiscal flow of the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian population as well. Very dire situation, like we said, and unsustainable. Unsustainable, and now we're over four months into it. Nimrod, on a related note, connecting to the West Bank, but also primarily Jerusalem, we saw earlier this week the Israeli War Cabinet holding discussions ahead of Ramadan, which is set to start around March 10th or 11th. There was a fairly irresponsible leak, I think we can call it that, 
by National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir to the effect that all Arab Israelis would be barred from prayer at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, uh, which wasn't correct. It wasn't a correct report or leak by Ben-Gvir. But concerns and tensions are definitely rising over this entire issue next month. How do you think this Israeli government should handle this very delicate upcoming period? And slightly differently, but the same question, what's your fear about how this current Israeli government may handle the upcoming and very delicate period? Let's zoom out for a minute and recall that uh, some 13, 14 months ago when uh, Netanyahu formed this current uh, government, many of us cautioned that uh, appointing a, a reckless arsonist in the person of Ben Gvir uh, to be minister of police or in its current uh, more shiny uh, title, minister of national security, and appointing a determined annexationist in the person of Smotrich uh, to be not only Minister of Finance that controls much of Palestinian funds, but also a minister in the Ministry of uh, Defense in charge of settlers, basically, was a prescription for disaster. We anticipated uh, difficult times ahead with these two running around, and things are getting even worse than we had anticipated. It turns out that Bengal is more reckless than even we had anticipated, and, and Smotrich came to office much better prepared to execute his annexationist policies than anybody could have anticipated. And all that without absolving uh, extreme Palestinians of their responsibility for tension, with their constituents, respected constituents and joint constituents, uh, being emboldened by uh, the seniority of uh, their two leaders in the cabinet, what we see unfolding in the territories is, is frightening. And when you have a war going on in Gaza and war going on in Lebanon and spirits are as high as uh, Ibrahim described them in the territory, tensions are high uh, in the West Bank, the eve of uh, Ramadan is obviously a point of worry. So if that was the moment when uh, the Israeli government should have called in and communicated uh, intimately with the Jordanians who are the, the official custodians by the peace treaty with, uh, between us and them, uh, of the holy sites in Jerusalem, communicated with other, certainly with leadership of the Israeli Arab citizenry, conveyed messages of accommodation, restricting what necessary for security with a very narrow prism and working on cooperative atmosphere on the eve of the holiday. This might have contained the danger, but uh, the way the government is working, and you just alluded to the deliberate leak distortion by Ben Gvir trying to ignite tensions among Israeli Arabs on the eve of Ramadan by telling them that uh, we're going to prohibit all of them from entering the holy sites for prayer on the holiest month. He might grant Sinwar his initial wish, which he failed to accomplish, which is ignite all areas simultaneously, starting in, in Gaza, the hope was that uh, Lebanon and Iran and its other proxies will join in, and the West Bank and Israeli Arabs as well. To his disappointment, uh, in our pleasant surprise, Israeli Arabs are behaving in an exemplary fashion, united in rejecting the Hamas conduct, the, the brutality, the, the viciousness of the atrocities that took place on, on, on October 7th, and even though their sympathy is certainly is with the suffering population of Gaza, they have not gone 
uh, out the street. They have not demonstrated. They have behaved as, as loyal citizens who, who have a different sentiment, who have uh, objections to the policy. I'm afraid that Benvir is so determined to ignite the area and Netanyahu is so beholden uh, to him and Smotrich that all efforts of the security establishment, the professionals who see what's coming and who are opposed to those measures might not uh, suffice. It's true. And zero incidents amongst Arab citizens of Israel over the past four plus months, uh, like you said, remarkably responsible conduct by both the citizenry and the leadership. And there's a precedent for Ben Gvir fomenting tensions and conflict and upheaval. And that was May and April, by the way, of 2021, when he and his militias were running all around East Jerusalem and the West Bank and the old city of Jerusalem. And that eventually led to uh, to an explosion, both inside Israel and vis-a-vis Gaza. So there is precedent to that. Ibrahim, same question to you. How concerned are you about the situation both in Jerusalem and the West Bank heading into next month in Ramadan? I think I want to comment on what uh, Nemrud just said and basically go back. Uh, my memory does not serve, but we may, we may have actually uh, discussed this in, even in 2021 during the, uh, the war back then in Gaza, which started with Hamas actually firing rockets towards Jerusalem, if you remember. That was actually about the march of flags. That was the core of it. That conflict was all about Jerusalem, or at least this is was this was the perception across all Muslims between the river and the sea, Palestinians in the West Bank, Gazans, and Israeli Arabs. And you know there were incidents back then inside Israel, inside Israeli Arab towns, including Haifa, if you recall. And those were triggered because the core problem was Aqsa Mosque. It doesn't really take a genius to understand that Aqsa Mosque, Haram Sharif, Temple Mount is a place of, it's basically the nucleus, it's the nerve of this conflict. And any tampering with this situation, taking it to extremes in, in either side will definitely add, you know, basically fuel to the, to the, to the fire. And obviously, you know, despite the fact that the West Bank is under so much pressure, uh, it didn't really erupt into any major sort of like uh, large demonstrations and clashes. It's still, you know, um, uh, limited to certain military operations. And I'm afraid that if we, if the situation, you know, continues as is, and then we also have this general prohibition to allow people to go to, to Aqsa to pray during the holy month of Ramadan, it's going to be this spark that will actually uh, start uh, extreme tensions definitely in the West Bank, on the checkpoints, around Friday prayers, around every day of the uh, of every week of Ramadan. And also, I think, and I don't speak on behalf, but I think also this is going to impact in a very big and major way Israeli Arabs, who, in my opinion, in 2021, were not out in the streets because they supported Hamas, but because they were concerned about what was happening uh, on Aqsa. And back then, there were so many provocations that were happening, including senior officials, you know, taking... Um, provocative visits and calling to destroy the place. It's not, you know, it's not connected to Hamas, but Hamas had back then played on that sentiment. And by the way, even this time, even with the October 7 attack, they tried to play the same sentiment by calling the whole confrontation, the whole attacks on October 7, Aqsa flood. But, you know, obviously people did not, especially Israeli Arabs, did not really buy that. 
So now, you know, there are those who actually think on the Israeli side and the Israeli government side that maybe, you know, like we, it's time to actually do, you know, another major provocation. In their minds, maybe it's not a provocation, but it is. It will be interpreted this way and it could actually lead to a very unfortunate situation. Yes, and it's a misconception or misunderstanding among many quarters of what actually happened here in May of 2021, where the assumption was that Arab Israelis and the intercommunal riots between uh, Arabs and Jews inside Israel proper happened due to the Gaza war, that it was somehow in solidarity with Hamas, whereas, uh, like you said, Ibrahim, it was precisely due to the rising tensions and, I'll call it, provocations by the Israeli far right at Al-Aqsa, in and around the Old City, in East Jerusalem. That was the real trigger. I have no doubt in my mind that this was because, and it has always been because, the, the question, again, of Haram Sharif Aqsa is cross-borders. It has nothing to do with Hamas, Fatah, this, that, even, even elderly people with no political affiliation whatsoever, with no political views even, are hurt and offended and provoked when they are you know, denied and banned and there are restrictions on anyone, not only on them as individuals. This is a very touchy, you know, sensitive issue that I don't really think it takes a genius to understand. It's, it's a very obvious thing. I don't have to actually say that almost 100 years ago, even before the creation of the state of Israel, there were major riots across historic Palestine and Palestine at the time because of you know, the situation on Haram al-Sharif. And th- that is, you know, I think if you look at what, ha- what has been happening in Gaza since October 7, and the fact that there were no gatherings and there was basically no reaction uh, by Israeli Arabs, it should actually prove the, the assumption that the 2021 was all about provocations in Jerusalem and Haram al-Sharif in, in specific. 100%, and maybe individuals like Ben Gvir don't like the fact that there was no reaction by uh, Arab Israelis or even Jerusalemites and West Bankers. Maybe they're trying to ignite that match, uh, what one Palestinian official uh, once called it, playing with nuclear weapons here in the Holy Land. Nimrod, I wanted to shift to Gaza, and specifically Gaza diplomacy. There's a lot of talk right now, not only about a ceasefire and hostage deal, but this wider U.S.-led diplomatic gambit and push for pretty much everything else as well. Uh, Israel-Saudi normalization, uh, Palestinian statehood, Palestinian authority reform, possibly also some deal in the north between Israel and Lebanon. First question to you, how do you rate the chances for this U.S. grand bargain uh, to get off the ground and actually succeed? I'm afraid that the chances are uh, very slim and they're all stuck in Jerusalem. You see, we are facing, it's almost a cliche, but I believe that this time it applies, a fork uh, in the road of historical proportions. We are facing with the option of a prolonged occupation of Gaza. We alone remain to run the, the strip in all matters, governance, civil matters, funding, security, police. And a prolonged occupation is likely to spill over to the West Bank. Hamas popularity is skyrocket as it is. And if it turns out a permanent Israeli uh, occupation with no end in sight and no exit strategy, the mood in the West Bank is likely not to change, but perhaps get uh, to the worst. And we may end up with a Gaza-like situation in, in the West Bank. And if that were to happen, 
the countries at peace with us uh, will have a dilemma. I mean, uh, will they be able to resist public pressure to walk away and distance themselves from, from Israel and from peace treaties and normalization agreement? And, uh, and the normalization, uh, the prospect of normalization with Saudi Arabia uh, will go into the archives of missed opportunities. That, that, that's one side of the fork. The other one is what is now being called the Biden initiative, Biden plan, Biden strategy, that offers Israel basically a three-win situation, uh, a regional support in pacifying Gaza, rebuilding Gaza, extricating ourselves from Gaza, a regional approach with the U.S. and Europeans and others to revitalizing the Palestinian Authority and opening the road for sliding away from one state, the, the ever-conflicted one-state reality, in the direction of an eventual two-state uh, reality. And a third layer, which is integrating Israel into the region, into a new regional architecture that is uh, supposed to uh, contribute to the prosperity of all, but first and foremost, to jointly check Iranian meddling and, and Iranian and, and its proxies. A very clear fork in the road, two very contradictory visions. Alas, the, the second vision... By the way, Nimrod, I should also add, to get the hostages back. That absolutely, back absolutely. And possibly, and more likely in this context, a non-kinetic solution to our problems with Hezbollah, a diplomatic one. But this vision rests on, on two prerequisites are both vehemently rejected by Netanyahu. One is the Gaza rehabilitation, rather Gaza management is done under the auspices of the Palestinian Authority. And two, that it is all done in the context of a path toward a two-state solution. Uh, nobody is trying to impose one a two-state solution period. Nobody envisions that to happen overnight. But the prime minister, who is now totally beholden to the very fringes of society, the most extreme elements of society that he handpicked to his coalition, is now catering to an ever-shrinking base of extremism, says no to the two prerequisites. And therefore, it seems that, one, the American initiative, and it's no longer American, it's an American-slash-regional initiative, is stuck in Jerusalem. And two, absent a decision of what kind of a morning after we're talking about in Gaza and beyond, when you don't make a decision, this is a decision nonetheless. And we are sliding in the direction of a prolonged, open-ended occupation, unless we Israelis come to our senses and the domestic clock precedes the regional one. That Netanyahu is putting his own domestic political fortunes ahead of this... National say, security national security, international or regional position for the country. Yeah. And Ibrahim, what do you think the chances are for a deal? And also on the Palestinian side of this equation, when the U.S. talks about a reformed or quote-unquote revitalized Palestinian authority, what to your mind would this actually look like as part of this deal? Actually, I think that both public and official circles of the Palestinian Authority Look at the current situation, and I'm going to be very blunt. So long as there is a government in Israel led by far-right extremists, including the prime minister, there are no chances and no prospects for any deal that would uh, address the Israeli-Palestinian conflict now without gambling on whether or not there will be a normalization deal with, you know, with Saudi Arabia. Leaving that aside, 
as far as, again, Palestinian public and official circles are concerned, I think that they look at the Israel, you know, the U.S. attempts, you know, whether genuine or not, whether able to execute or not, so long as you have an Israeli, the current Israeli government in place with their stated positions, with their practices and policies, there are no prospects to actually move forward. And I think that is becoming a conviction. Now they are watching to see whether there will be, you know, developments uh, in Israel. In other words, whether there, there is a day after in Israel. And if, if not, then, you know, it's not, you know, they're not really uh, selling much on or, or betting much on, you know, stated uh, American positions or even European positions for that matter. Although they are extremely, you know, out of the norm new promise, you know, a future, but I think experience have, have taught Palestinian public and official circles that without an Israeli partner, things will not really move in a real and a concrete way. I think the short answer uh, that uh, I know senior Palestinian officials, leaving aside the public, who's much more frustrated, by the way, much more... They're much more skeptical, even than the, than the leadership. Yes, and I think they're in deep uh, sort of like pleas in terms of starting hopes again that this could actually move forward. Uh, but Palestinian Authority officials' position is that when the current U.S. administration is in a position to either stop the war or, you know, resolve the, uh, the crisis over tax revenues with the current Israeli government, then this gives us an indication that the U.S. administration is serious and or able to actually do things. For now, they look at it as the U.S. administration finds it, you know, much easier to support the Israeli government. Differences between the two sides are not really taking a concrete shape in the sense that the U.S. is changing any of its standing policies or practices. Today, there was like a U.S. veto in the Security Council over uh, a motion that was presented by Algeria. The message that is picked up here is that the, you know, the U.S. administration continues to support this far-right uh, Israeli government. And, and therefore, they're not really in a position to actually make any expectations or raise their expectations. Rather, Having said all of that, I think if there are political changes in Israel, the Palestinian Authority is under pressure both domestically and, uh, you know, like externally now, uh, to take uh, steps towards reforms. But that's a big uh, topic that has so many different levels and dimensions. So I don't know how much you want me to go into it, but I can if, uh, if time allows. No, I, I'd love to hear what that would actually look like, at least part of it, right? So they're talking about maybe easing out Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, appointing, let's say, a more empowered prime minister. Again, uh, Go back twenty years, and this is uh, the same, the same game plan as the uh, the old roadmap. But still, a new technocratic government, maybe even certain internal reforms, uh, going after corruption, elections. I mean, what are we actually talking about, to your mind, when we hear this new phrase that's being bandied around, a revitalized Palestinian Authority? Okay, now the revitalization of the Palestinian Authority, as was presented. Uh, including by President Biden himself, never had any definition. It was basically floated out there without explaining what the terms, what it entails, what the goals are. And therefore, now you have different Palestinian positions. You have basically different interpretations and different definitions. One of it on the top is basically that of the official circle, President Abbas and the current leadership, 
And the way they look at it is simply forming a technocratic government that will not include any political factions representation, not Hamas, not Fatah, not any other. The president is thinking of one of his close advisors to actually, you know, become becoming a prime minister. You know, there are rumors. Some of it uh, was like even reported in the press talking about Mohammed Mustafa, who's a PLO executive committee member, a longtime economic advisor to President Abbas and head of the Palestinian Investment Fund. Others think of different names. Uh, but basically, it's confined to that. In addition, of course, they think about resurrecting the older PA bureaucracy that provided services in Gaza and the older system, the security system that uh, existed before 2007 because individuals have been paid since then and they are on the pay, PA pay, payroll, although they have not really been working. So that's one level of the reforms that the Palestinian Authority officially is thinking about. And, uh, you know, th- there are other circles within Fatah itself we actually are thinking that maybe time is, is, is now most conducive to resolve the question of succession and basically to President Abbas since he's grown uh, old and, you know, like appoint an empowered prime minister who would actually emerge as the leader of the Palestinian Authority over time uh, if he gets basically all the tasks associated with this government or task, you know, the tasks of this uh, government once formed. Uh, in a, you know, in a period of two to four years. And you have a third circle of Palestinians, independents and others, like former Prime Minister Salam Fayyad and others who present, uh, you know, their own views about that and would want to be elected. Hamas and others who want to be, if not, uh, you know, in, in, in participating in the government, but part of the Palestinian political system, including in the PLO, and as such continue to exercise some sort of authority over the government. Now, you know, all of that is not really, is like moving dynamics, but have not really been decided in any way or form. I think the fact that the war is still raging in Gaza is giving all sides on the Palestinian side basically the luxury of waiting until this uh, situation unfolds one way or the other. Uh, and by the way, the Palestinian Authority, you know, like the official leadership has even, you know, certain prerequisites that they want to be achieved before they even form the government or simultaneously with forming the government, including you know, uh, financial resources and tax revenues were held by Israel, including a pathway to a political, you know, solution uh, to states, uh, creation of a Palestinian state. You know, whether these are like lip service, uh, I think the, the one about the, uh, you know, the political two-state solution might be a longer term, sort of like the objective or goal that they want to be stated uh, in a concrete way before moving forward. But the question of financial resources, in fact, is not just a prerequisite, it's like a basic need for any government to work. Their argument is that if we form a government today with the current financial situation, it won't be able to do anything in the West Bank, let alone Gaza. So, you know, we have all that, all those dynamics around. You know, I don't really think that we have any uh, decisive moment. And I think that the clock will start ticking once we have a ceasefire in place. Right. I think that's the prerequisite to any of these diplomatic initiatives, uh, an end one way or another to, to the war. I think everyone, whether American or, or Arab, are looking to, to achieve that combined with the hostage release deal as the, the building block for these wider initiatives. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. As Israel pushes forward with its war in Gaza and grapples with political turmoil at home, Israel Policy Forum experts have been providing timely, clear-headed, and sober analysis on the ongoing conflict. In the Financial Times, policy advisor and Israel Policy Pod host Neri Zilber wrote on the impact of Smotrich and Ben Gvir on Netanyahu's approach to the war. 
Applications are open for IPFAT's Leadership Summit in Chicago from May 19th to May 21st. Open to young professionals in IPFAT's Leadership Network. IPFAT is also accepting applications for its Policy Fellowship for undergrads. This exclusive cohort opportunity is offered to 10 college students across North America who are passionate about promoting informed, policy-based discourse about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict on campus. Fellows receive a $500 stipend upon completion of the fellowship. Explore our 2023 Impact Report, which provides a brief snapshot of our work amid last year's unprecedented challenges and tragedies. Links to these resources and opportunities can be found in the show notes of this podcast. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today so that our work can continue to have an impact. Donate now at ipf.li slash support the pod or at the support the show link in the show notes. I wanted to bear down into one thing that we briefly touched on, but it's a huge issue as our final topic to discuss, and that's the the day after in Gaza. By the way, with or without a deal, Nimrod, you laid out a few different scenarios, this kind of fork in the road. And as you also alluded to, Israel has said uh, three things about post-war Gaza. Uh, it won't be Hamas running things, it won't be Israel running things, and it won't be the Palestinian Authority running things, which begs the question, as it has for several months now, okay, what are you actually left with? Nimrod, I know you're intimately involved with this question, but how do your mind should post-war Gaza be run? Again, ideally, I suppose, with this wider regional diplomatic initiative, but let's say even without that, or is that a precondition for any kind of reasonable post-war day after Gaza settlement? Look, the Israeli uh, security establishment basically having uh, adjusted itself to uh, the reality that no reasonable suggestion uh, floated uh, upward to the political uh, echelon comes back with a green light, uh, has all but castrated itself and really restrained itself uh, from suggesting anything that they anticipate will, will be rejected. As a result, what we see is a hodgepodge of ideas of how do you run the morning after in Gaza while squaring the circle of the three no's uh, that you uh, mentioned. So if it is not us and if it is not Hamas, uh, for sure, uh, and it is not the Palestinian Authority, and if it is not the Palestinian Authority, then no third party thus far uh, has expressed a willingness to contribute to the morning after, contribution be it financial or more substantial uh, boots on the ground and, and things like that. So they come up with all kinds of ideas of relying on the old gangs in Gaza, the old families, the clans, the clan leadership in order to, I mean, Gaza is 2.2 million people. This is not a small neighborhood somewhere. It's a very substantial community with needs that are beyond imagination these days in the wake of the devastating war. You need mechanisms, serious mechanisms to funnel the funds, to organize the project and, and, and so on and so forth, and to leave it in the hands of individuals, many of them are crime families, uh, to fight each other over the resources and take care of their own rather than of the general good, this is not going to work. And even those who are promoting it, oh, not promoting, but putting it together for the government because everything else has been ruled out, uh, they know it's not going to work. So we're going to be faced with a military governance. Again, unless there is a political change in Israel, we're going to be faced with a military government because the military is the only entity in this country 
that can create a mechanism to run such a huge challenge, to meet such an uh, enormous challenge. So most of us are looking at the various scenarios of what will be the change, how will the change will happen in Israel. But leaving that speculation aside, I'd say that uh, it's not just uh, your friend Nimrod Novik here in Ranana, Israel, that reached the conclusion that the entire strategy is stuck in Jerusalem. Without being privy to, to any of the internal deliberations, it is clear from the outside, observe, observing from the outside, that Washington has reached the same conclusion as well. And we're beginning to see uh, indications uh, that the administration and the president himself reached a conclusion that with the current BB and the, with the current BB government, it's just not going to happen and something has to give. But the gradualism by which President Biden is taking off the gloves is so incremental that we in Israel behave like that famous miserable frog in the proverb. Uh, the water gets hotter, but you don't notice that soon you're going to be boiling. Uh, I'm not sure we will reach the boiling point with President Biden, who has exhibited such tremendous friendship, loyalty, affinity with Israel decades before, and certainly in a magnificent way since uh, October 7th. And Israelis reciprocate. He is as popular in Israel as any American president ever. He was the father figure when he came here shortly after the war broke out. Uh, he was the fa father figure we didn't have at home. He has a lot of credibility with the Israeli public. And the real question is, will he leverage that credibility in order to present the Israeli public with a stark choice? Now, the decisions will be ours. I mean, uh, it's our job to elect a government of this nature or another. But I, I, I doubt that most Israelis are aware of the significant difference of the future of Israel for the next decade and possibly beyond, if we go the route of the no decision that ends with occupation, or we embrace the regional approach that President Biden is offering us. I don't think Israelis are well aware of it. And I hope that the president, the international community, the region, those who have the power of microphone vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli public, like the Saudi crown prince, I hope oh, they all use their microphones in order to tell the Israeli public, hey guys, here is what's available. Make up your mind if you want it or not. And if you don't, enjoy Gaza. I like how you deployed the metaphor, the allegory of the boiling frog. To my mind, it's a question who the frog is in this scenario. Is it Israel or is it the Biden administration? that's uh, slowly, slowly boiling until it realizes that it's being boiled alive. And Nimrod, as an Israeli and also as an analyst, you say this with the full knowledge that it may require, say, ending the war, quote unquote, prematurely, say in the coming weeks, by the way, or the month or two, before the war aim, as it's been termed by uh, this Israeli government, to you know dismantle, eliminate, destroy Hamas is actually reached. Look, it is, it is even more troubling than that. And I'll make two comments on this. One, what we hear from, from the prime minister is not policy directive. It's sloganeering, catering to machoism. Total victory is not a policy directive. Destroying Hamas is not a policy directive. Unless you mean go after the last Hamas operative who carries a Klatschikov somewhere, anywhere in the Middle East. This sloganeering yields two results. 
Both are awful. One, it creates a realistic expectations among the Israeli public that will wake up one morning and there's no Hamas. There is no such reality over the horizon uh, or, or on this side or, or any other side of the horizon. Second, it does not tell the IDF what is the morning after, what does the government want the morning after to look like? And if you don't know what the morning after is supposed to look like, that's supposed to inform the way you conduct the operation. I mean, we, we now see the dilemma that instead of what some have advocated from the outset, starting the operation in the South, taking the uh, so-called Philadelphia Corridor, uh, through which much arms have been uh, smuggled in and out, people in and out of Gaza, and was the primary reason for uh, Hamas being able to, to arm so substantially, rather than starting with the north and driving the population to the south. And now we have a dilemma of 1.4 million people crammed into a 250,000 people city of, of Rafah and so on. So the government did not define an operationally relevant aims of the war. Second point that I would make is more and more amongst us, and I'm talking primarily my colleagues among the 550 members of Commanders for Israel Security, all former uh, senior most security and diplomatic officials, speak about the fact that prioritizing bringing back the hostages as long as most of them are still alive, should take precedent over anything else, including ending the war as is. Whatever has been accomplished in destroying Hamas infrastructure, military infrastructure, in destroying Hamas management, ability to govern uh, the Strip, uh, whatever residual Hamas uh, presence there is, it can continue for months, it can continue for years, and we are going to lose all of the remaining 134 uh, hostages. These civilians were taken out of, the, out of their home because of a 15-year government wrong strategy and because of a failure of the IDF on the eve, eve of October 7th. For these reasons, prioritizing them comes first, even if it means ending the war right now. And once that happens, we not, not only get back the hostages, as you correctly pointed out, but we open the door for the uh, broader vision that the Biden strategy suggests. And Ibrahim, the final question to you, and it's related uh, to the day after question in Gaza. From the Palestinian perspective, from the Palestinian point of view, let's say the war ends sooner rather than later. What would the day after in Gaza look like? Uh, we know that Hamas and Fatah are holding meetings and discussions uh, in various Gulf capitals about a reconciliation bid. Uh, I've lost track of what number uh, attempt reconcil for reconciliation this is, but this is almost a separate track from the wider diplomatic gambit. There's talk about say, having a technocratic government go into Gaza and run things. You know, there are discussions maybe of remnants, political remnants of Hamas being allowed into the PLO. So from your perspective, what would the day after in Gaza actually look like if and when this war ends? Before I answer this question, I just have a comment on the goals defined by the current Israeli government in terms of total elimination and destruction of Hamas. 
And I'm not an Israeli, but basically as an observer, I can tell you that two shapes, forms, structures of Hamas are destructible. And I think one of them has already been destroyed, which is the Hamas government uh, in Gaza. The, you know, by sanctions alone, after the, the total devastation in Gaza, there is no chance, there is no way for Hamas to come back and govern Gaza. And incidentally, you know, if the government of Israel right now, which I imagine it will, backs down on allowing other countries to fund, you know, the Hamas government in Gaza, it will not be able to survive. And I'm referring clearly to the Israeli policy in the past years where, you know, for certain political purposes, maybe security purposes, the way that they defined it and so it was basically to allow funding to go to Gaza government, which was, you know, controlled by Hamas. From Qatar? Yes, from Qatar, basically. And the second, uh, and I'm not divulging a secret, I guess everyone actually knows this, but now with the uh, with the war, this uh, debate has not really taken toll in Israel. And I, by the way, overwatch Israeli media over these and other, you know, uh, dynamics. But second, you know, the military wing of Hamas. By any plausible reading of the current, you know, of the situation, you know, that the Hamas military wing or system that, you know, was there operating in October 6th and carried out the attacks in October 7th has not really been spared the destruction in Gaza. So it has been diminished uh, in terms of its capacities and, and, and infrastructure. And by the way, if you compare this to uh, what happened in the West Bank 20 years ago, the defensive shield operation did not really continue for, for 20 years. But the defensive shield operation lasted for about six months across the West Bank, four months in certain areas, five months in other areas. But then, you know, it continued, you know, whenever there was a security threat that would have been and still is being confronted. In other words, if there is a decision to stop the war, the question of whether or not Israel will be able to strike against terrorists in Gaza, to me, is like a joke, because of course they will. So in other words, I think when you have a government, a reasonable government that wants to define the goals realistically, the last, the last shape and structure of Hamas is that it's a political organization which some people refer to as an ideology. And that is where you have popular support for people who stand up against the occupation. You can't, you know, de-radicalize a public who supports, you know, a, a faction that embraces violence if you do not create an alternative path. And I think when Namrud spoke about earlier, and I tell you this as a Palestinian you know, observer and on air, uh, if you will, yes, we do not expect a Palestinian state to be created tomorrow. We need a path. We need hope. A horizon. A horizon, basically, that we, we see concrete steps of deoccupation happening. And that is where you have the Palestinian public mobilized against all forms of violence and against all kinds of extremism. If we do not really get there, and I don't really see that we are getting there with the current Israeli government as a partner, then, you know, we are in a different situation. And that's my, you know, comment on that part. In terms of how the Palestinians see it, I actually start where I ended with my comment. You know, the international community, the U.S., the EU, and all other countries are there to help and support. And the problem, I think, is that between the Palestinian Authority, which is relying on clans to govern Gaza, is basically going back 25 or even more, 35 years ago, where there were, in the West Bank, there was a similar phenomenon of the village leagues, which was all about, you know, clans in the West Bank, and they were unable to govern the Palestinian themselves, you know, uh, the Palestinian people, or serve themselves as, as a governance system. 
this is like going way in the past to try all tools that never worked before and trying to work them again. This is not a serious proposal or tool. There is no alternative, in my opinion, to basically fixing the pathway between Israelis and Palestinians. You know, essentially, you're, you're empowering the moderates on the Palestinian side if you create such a path. Having said that, all the discussions between Fatah and Hamas now and before were hinging on one, one key point. There is no inclusion of Hamas into the PLO without embracing in full PLO commitments, PLO agreements, including recognition of Israel, including, you know, the Oslo agreement. And if they fail to do that, and I don't really see them doing that, unless we see a new shift in Hamas or a rift, maybe, between extremists and, and pragmatists, if you will, those who would embrace these on a longer term, I think the Palestinian system would include them. But right now, as it stands today, I, I don't really have high hopes that this would be resolved. I'm not worried much about that after all what happened in Gaza because I think the path to pushing them from governance, which is an achievable goal, has already been achieved. In other words, you know, the Palestinian Authority can basically come and tell Hamas, okay, you know, we, we have one proposal only. Create and we will come with a technocratic government. And if you don't want, you can basically face the people in Gaza and do reconstruction yourselves. And, and they can do that. So they're not in a position to put so many conditions. They are playing with time. They're putting some conditions now, you know, like they want to create an ad hoc committee that would, you know, be the terms of reference or would be, would have a say on the, on the technocratic government. But I think when the moment of truth comes, and that's again as defined as the ceasefire and needing to actually jump on the ground and start working, I don't really think that they will have much to, to do to, to place conditions. And I think that this is something that could be uh, hammered and, and, and uh, independent non-partisan, non-political government is created to do the work with the hopes that in the two to four years' time, if this government succeeds in build, rebuilding Gaza international, uh, you know, with international partnership and succeeds to actually lead and participate in an active political pathway with, uh, with the State of Israel, a new sort of like entity emerges between Fatah and Hamas. And that is an important, I think, development once and if you know, the situation goes in, in that way. In order to do that, again, we need an Israeli partner to move forward. It's not only Israel to blame, that's true, but at the same time, you know, without an Israeli partner to actually empower the PA, move with the moderates, create a political path, uh, do what it takes to ease the situation in the West Bank, the situation will continue to be difficult, doomed, and everyone is, you know, is, is unable to actually do much on the ground, especially the Palestinian Authority. It's not you know, it's not, uh, you know, the government of China has no resources, has no impact if it doesn't really have full cooperation from the government of Israel. You know, again, this is a government that receives its, month, its monthly, you know, financial resources from the government of Israel. When they are withheld, it's paralyzed. It, it doesn't, you know, it's not, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. You need a partner, otherwise it won't work. So, unfortunately, gentlemen, we have to leave it there. But I like the fact that Ibrahim uh, summed up our conversation on a more optimistic note, I have to say, in terms of a potential post-war Gazan future. But uh, obviously, these issues are, are still in play and will likely still be in play in the uh, weeks and months ahead. So we'll have you back on very soon, I'm sure. So, Ibrahim, Nimrod, thank you again. Take care. Thank you.
Thanks again to Nimrod Novik and Ibrahim Delalshe, as always, for their generous time and insights. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work. Do consider making a donation to Israel Policy Forum so it can keep being a credible source of analysis and ideas on issues such as these that we all care deeply about, including this podcast. And most importantly, thank you, thank you for listening. 